Listening to Battle Red Radio. I'm at Weston tonight. I'm joined by Mike Meltzer to kind of review the Texans' 2021 season and pre- preview their upcoming 2022 NFL offseason. How are you doing tonight, Mike? I'm doing well, Matt. How are you? I'm doing great. I'm doing great. It's kind of uh, weird now with the Super Bowl being pushed back this far, where typically you know you have some time to reflect on what just happened and everything else, but it's already you know the middle of February. Free agency is going to be, you know, like kind of three weeks away um, with how it kind of works or guys sign before free agency even opens. And so it's such a quick turnaround that this idea of doing like a season review, I think, will already be lost upon the masses. So we're going to kind of do both at once tonight. Yeah, I I agree with that. It's a it's an oddly quick turnaround uh, because you think about a free agency is in basically less than a month. And I mean, there are some that think that the Texans will want to trade Deshaun Watson by the start of the league year, which means this is going to be a pivotal next four-week period. It's interesting how, you know, you add the 17th game, you delay the end of the season by a week, and it's like, boom, this offseason, it's like right upon you. Yeah, I completely agree. And I want to complain for a second, because I, I hate the 17th game. I hate the extra week. Also, I hated the Super Bowl last weekend, because um, like this is the first Super Bowl I've watched by myself probably since I was like, my entire life. I've watched with my son and my newborn son, you know, and I had to watch like all the commercials and it took five hours and I couldn't even <laughs> enjoy the game because it was just so like stop and start and stop and start that there was like no flow at all to it. Yeah. It was really hard to follow along, you know, and well, I ended up just hating the entire like watching the Super Bowl experience this time this year. It's uh, it was a really close game, but not a great game. Like yeah. I was, it was, it was a pretty, it was a pretty solid game, but it was not like the level of play was super great. I mean, there's that that period of an hour in the second half where it was like three and out, five and out, punt, 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 sack, sack, punt. You know, mm-hmm. where not a lot was going on before you're like, okay, now it's go time for the Rams. Yeah, and and I think it's also just hard being a human where it just. It's hard to keep track of things. And like Joe Burrow was sacked like seven times last week. I don't remember that at all. Um, there's like the all way, these things I, that occur that you just kind of forget <laughs> because the game is so long. I know this is going to drive people like yourself crazy. How how many reactionaries are going to be like, well, the Bengals obviously need to trade for Laramie Tunsil. Like, it makes complete, me so upset. <laughs> like completely ignoring what's actually happening on the Bengals offensive line. Like people are going to act like the guy they had at right tackle, Isaiah Prince, who, by the way, was not even good in college, let alone the NFL, is like their actual right tackle, which, of course, he is not, and is something that you well know that others may not. Yeah, well, like, Jonah Williams is a good left tackle. Like, he finally actually brought it all together this year. Um, you know, Genji's probably, like, the worst offensive lineman I've watched in yes. a long time. Prince isn't good. Like, he was a little bit better in the postseason and, like, hung in there a little bit. Quentin Spain, I don't know how he's 30 years old, but he's the biggest narcissist in the entire NFL in a league filled with narcissists. And then, like, Hopkins was a little bit better um, at center, you know, throughout the year, too. But, yeah, I mean, like, they need to rework both guard positions and tackle. Maybe Spain can stay there for another year. But, yeah, it's not Jonah Williams. That's not the problem that they have in Cincinnati right now. Agre- yeah, I, I agree with that. So I do think that there will be 
a Laramie Tunsil destination. I'm just not so sure you can look at a team and say, hey, the Bengals gave up a million sacks. They should give up their, you know, the number 31 pick for Tunsil. I don't think it's going to quite work that exact way. Yeah, that's the Bill O'Brien. If Bill O'Brien was running the Cincinnati Bengals, that's what he yeah. would do. He would trade he for Laramie Tunsil right now and be like, okay, we're good. Yes. Now I'll put Jonah right. Williams out, place at right tackle, and that doesn't solve anything. And we completely ignored our interior all over again. That is fair. Yes. And I guess you can always pay Jeff Allen to stop making cookies and he can you know, play some offensive guard again too. Another thing that's really annoying is you know some people uh, who are going to say, hey, look at what the Rams did to win the Super Bowl. This is exactly what Bill O'Brien was going for. Just ignoring that you know, the Rams have a really good coach in Sean McVay, even though I think he's not really an asset during an actual football game, which is kind of weird. Yeah. Uh, but they, the Rams... They don't do this stuff willy-nilly. They have a they have an organizational plan where it's like, yeah, we're going to exchange draft picks, valuable ones, but basically for more or less sure things, guys who are young or rare talents, rare opportunity like Matt Stafford, but the Rams, they draft a lot of players and they play a lot of players, mm-hmm. which is not something that Bill O'Brien did. So it's frustrating to watch sort of like a higher echelon of what O'Brien was trying to pull off in a way that it could actually work. You just need, you know, a lot of different components. You need luck. But what they're doing is not what Bill O'Brien was doing. Certainly. Yeah, I completely agree. And I was thinking about this the other day, too. I think it was more like what Rick Smith did is what the Rams did, just by building, like, a Stars and Scrubs roster. I think the difference, though, yeah. with Los Angeles, and they, the Los Angeles has been you know, pretty fortunate about their health the past few seasons, too. But one of the things the Rams do well is they draft well, like, the fifth round, the sixth yes. round, the seventh round. Um, they get guys have like unknown sources, and I was kind of concerned about the Rams' defense being, you know, pretty good this year. I thought it was going to be a lot, a lot worse. I was going to be average instead of like a, a fringe top ten defense, just because of how much talent they lost last year from the starting positions. And then now they have no safeties at all. Uh, they draft a linebacker. They have Troy Reader out there. Yep. Um, they lose, you know, a cornerback and a safety, and none of it really matters at all for them, just because of how good their top talent is. And so I think they're kind of more like the 2012 Texans than the 2019 Texans. Because even though you know, O'Brien traded that, those picks for Tunsil, I think it's more of a stars and scrubs approach more so than, hey, just trade first-round picks for established players. I mean, I like with, with the Rams that there's a commitment to drafting guys and a commitment to playing those guys. That's something that always drove, drove me nuts about the O'Brien Texans, this whole idea. And what we even saw this... Um, happened a little bit in 2021, although less over time, this whole idea of like rookies are clowns and, you know, we can't play rookies where you look around the league and established really good organizations are playing rookies for extensive time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The funniest was the COVID thing. It's been a hard oh year for God. rookies in the COVID season and uh, rookies are really good that year. It didn't matter anyways. Yeah. I mean, and you saw it this year. It's like the guys who missed the, the college season in 2020, they, a lot of those guys were tremendous. It's just it, the, the whole O'Brien viewpoint on football is such a limiting uh, view, in my opinion. Yeah. And I think it's also made a lot of people just mentally ill, too. But like you want like so much <laughs> of this stuff is seen through that like scope of O'Brien version Texans, because as like I've learned this past year, you know, it's hard to watch a lot of football. And so like, if you only watch the Texans, you have a limited view of things. And um, and without being able to branch out, you kind of see things through that sort of like narrow scope, you know? Yeah, I think that's very fair. Um, so I want to do like a short revisit of the Texans 2021 season. Then we'll start talking about some offseason stuff. Um, first off, like as an objective viewer, I think the season went as expected. This was probably the first time writing a season preview where I actually picked the win-loss record right, picking them 4-13. Mm. and 13. 
Um, what was your biggest surprise though from this season, even though it kind of went about you, how you expect from a win-loss perspective? I would say my biggest surprise is that they had better performances uh, in certain situations than I kind of expected. Like uh, the two times they played against Tennessee, one win, one loss. Uh, the way they played, you know, late in the season, they beat the Chargers. They hung in for a while against San Francisco. Um, you know, I don't think this team had the roof kind of cave in. Like there were a couple of moments, I think, you know, when you look at this like middle of the season, it was like the the Carolina game, the Buffalo game, really both Indianapolis games where they were they didn't belong in the same field. Uh, the Seattle game, you know, got away from them. Uh, but just like n- nothing, nothing really came apart. And it almost felt like they were maybe playing some of their best football in the last four weeks. I don't know if you would agree or disagree with that, but it, that's kind of how it felt to me a little bit. Yeah, I mean, they're scrappy, I think, is probably the the biggest thing surprised me. Like, they played hard throughout the entire season. Yep. It wasn't like the 2020 season where, like, guys gave up, you know? Like, you yeah. watch Zach Cunningham in, in 2020. You watch some of the offensive linemen. Um, you watch some of the receivers and stuff, too. Like, aside from Watson, felt like a lot of the team gave up. But I was just kind of surprised by how scrappy they were. And then even kind of how Nick Casario's, you know, third batch of players he brought in were probably kind of some of his best ones, you know, with some of the success that, you know, Jonathan Owens had in his one game, um, Tavier Thomas. I think you could kind of include Roy Lopez in that, you know, third yep. batch of players because he was a later round pick, but just more like the obscure ways that Casario added talent um, and the success he had with those guys was the other thing that surprised me too. Yeah, that makes sense to me. I mean, you know, they did go through a, a long losing streak after the, uh, the the Jacksonville game, but you're right. The the feel of 2020 and what a catastrophe that was was a different feel in terms of 2021. And I don't know how much how much I subscribe to the idea of rebuilding culture, resetting the locker room, but I imagine the Texans' locker room was probably a much more normal place to be late in 2021 as compared to late in 2020. Yeah, I agree with that. And I know Casario said that too, like the culture is such a mess. But Yeah, he um, did say that, which was interesting. It was interesting, but it's like, yeah, if you make your entire commitment to fixing the culture, um, I think I would say the exact same thing as well too. But, you know, it's in, I don't know how, how true or how true it is and to whatever extent it is. But I'd be interested to see like what a player has to say about that. Because there's the same sort of, you know, cultural problems this year with the Justin Reed benching and the Desmond King benching and Lonnie Johnson Jr. getting benched and, and everything else too um, that – you know, maybe it's kind of goes more in line with whatever it is they want it to be. And we can talk more about that too when it comes to the Levy Smith hiring as well. Yes, there were a couple of those moments, and I think a bunch of those were self-inflicted, especially Justin Reed. But I think once they got to the end portion of the season, it, it seemed like some of those feelings kind of kind of went away. But I also picked up on the Casario, the culture was a mess at the end of 2020. Um, and, and I understand heading into the building at that point, like, there are a lot of raw, ruptured feelings in that building, and so you needed some kind of reset from that, certainly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so what was the biggest disappointment for you from the 2021 season? What was the big—I I kept. I was thinking about this. What was my biggest disappointment? Um, I, I had this sort of naive thought when they signed those running backs 
last March. This is really stupid, especially <laughs> reflecting on it. But I was like, you know what? Maybe they could have like a halfway decent running game with some combination of these players. And that really never worked out until Burkhead kind of super late in the season. I was just thinking like, you know, maybe with the new offensive line coach, they get somebody who knows what he's doing. They have Tunsil. They have Howard. Obviously, that didn't come to come to fruition because, you know, Tunsil was out for most of the season. But I was thinking like maybe they could cobble something together with like the Ingram, Lindsey, uh, Burkhead, Johnson combination. Um, I'm trying to think what, what would qual because my, my expectations were so low coming in. Mm-hmm. You know, what would be what would be a disappointment for me? I, I think Justin Reed didn't have a great season. It, it seems like he's heading into free agency where his first two years are probably his best body of work. Yeah. Heading into, you know, him trying to land somewhere else. Um, but I, I had this bizarre thought that like maybe because of offensive linemen returning, new offensive line coach some interesting veteran running backs. Maybe they could cobble something together relative to the worst running game in football. That obviously did not happen because they matched and even got worse as the worst running game in football. Yeah, it's hysterical. It's like the narrative for the Texans offensive line was, well, they need good players. And then they trade for Tunsil. It's like, he's going to change everything. Then it's like, well, they just need continuity. Then they bring the same five guys back and it's even worse. And then it's like, well, they need (laughs) a new offensive line coach. It's all Devlin. Then they get a new offensive line coach and it's even worse than that. And now Campins in Carolina and the offensive line coach they just hired, he was awful in Jackson for the last three years. Like the Jaguars yep. have had a terrible offensive line. A lot of the guys they draft haven't really developed into anything at all. Um, Brand Linder's like the only success they've had at all at that position. And he was good before that guy even got there. And I can't remember um, his name off the top of my head, but I don't think it's gonna make that much of a difference next year, too. I, I don't think I didn't think the run game was gonna be good this year. Uh, but I think that was the biggest disappointment though in this season. It wasn't like a personal disappointment, but as yeah, far as the yours? Texans, I would say the run game, but that's more about like how the Texans were constructed and how they wanted to win football games. You know, They wanted to run the ball 35 times. They mm-hmm. wanted a whole team to 24 points and kind of like an anaconda and like wouldn't have close games or whatever to you know, be respectable. But yeah, I even forgot that Philip Lindsay was the was a running back on this team. And Mark Ingram wasn't bad, you know? Yeah, He's he was actually not bad. pretty good. Yeah, I, I, he actually was, he actually was not bad. Um, you know, when you look at it, like, God, Lindsey was so terrible and just such a bad scheme fit for what they yeah. were doing. And I, obviously the frustration is, and, and this has to change moving forward, you watch other teams and you're kind of amazed that they keep plugging in young guys off the street in many cases, and they seem to be producing at a far higher level than what we're seeing in Houston. So that is something that needs to change for 2022. I know Casario gave... You know, Burke had a little extension here. Okay, I can live with that. But the other two guys have to be much younger. Like, you got, they got to get more juice mm-hmm. and youthful energy in there. Yeah, I still can't believe they brought back David Johnson last year. Like, when it happened, I was like, he's a dead horse already at this point. And, uh, and they gave him a bunch of carries and stuff, too. I think Lindsey averaged, like, 1.7 yards a carry in Houston last year. I mean, it had to be one of the least efficient individual <laughs> running backs in football. It just had to be, like, like with all those advanced stats. Everything had to be balanced, and he couldn't balance anything at all. Like every time, like a linebacker just chased every him time. The box. Yes, yeah. I think he had like one or two successful screens that Tim Kelly schemed up. Otherwise, it was like absolutely zilch. <laughs> absolutely zilch. Uh, what was your favorite play from the 2021 season? I was actually looking at some videos in preparation for this, and I had a couple. I would say the one that stands out just because maybe possibly there's some like long term here. Uh, I like the Davis Mills long completion to Chris Moore against the Patriots. Okay, like along the sideline, kind of a weird broken play. 
Uh, but I thought that was a nice job of, of Mills making something happen. I don't know how replicable that kind of thing is. Obviously, he put the ball in the exact right spot. Uh, it was just a, a really nice broken play uh, that, you know, that, 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 that that's the game that's kind of hard to explain. Well, maybe in hindsight. The, the Patriots went on a roll after that. Uh, it kind of felt like if they had beaten the Pats then, New England would have been absolutely dead in the water. We know we know what happened with that weird, you know, fake punt, weird weirdness scenario. But that that's the one I thought about the Gruje Hill pick six against Tennessee. I thought about the tunnel screen to Cooks against Jacksonville. Yeah, I'm just because it like revealed like, hey, uh, even without Laramie Tunsil, we get some random guy in here yeah. and he makes this block <laughs> as you play. So for for humorous effect, I had that on my list. But if I had to pick one. I said the Chris Moore play against the uh, the, the, the Patriots. What yeah. about you? Yeah, I wrote like a film room on Mills that game because that was like his first good like start. I was like, I don't know if he can make that sort of throw ever again. And I think he got close a little bit later in the year. Um, was, he made like one throw against the Titans that was you know really spectacular. And I've kind of seen this narrative too that Davis Mills um, lacks like high caliber throws. And I don't think that's his problem at all. I think his problem has been you know accuracy is the question, not necessarily like his inability to make high power throws. For me, though, it's like, you know, masochist, you know, sat there every Sunday just questioning what I'm doing, watching each one of these games three times, you know, watching the condensed film for the podcast and then watching all the film for it. For me, my favorite play is the fake, fake punt. Yes. In the Patriots game, too. fake, fake punts. And, like, it was so stupid as it was happening, and then it's stupid as it occurred, and then him just punting into the up back, which is something that we'll never see again at all. But my favorite part about, though, was the special teams coach was interviewed, and Rivers pulled a clip, and I can't remember exactly what he said, but he completely defended the fake, fake punt. You know, it's yeah. like, we got to reevaluate the process. It was a good call. You know, we got, we got to keep working at this. And, like, he had this minute and a half non sequitur that went nowhere. It was at Earl Burrow, so well, the special I, teams coordinator, you know, eating his own feet. Frank Ross, uh, I, I mean, I can defend it. Like, if they just had the proper blocking and that – punt by Johnson clears the line of scrimmage it would have been a it would have been a really successful play for them in that spot because I think that as a result of that fake the return man had gone up and so they would have been punting into basically completely empty space which if you if the ball lands properly you have a chance to really get a big play there but it was not blocked properly so I I without listening to the clip I, I understand sort of the spirit of what he was saying yeah I just I also think it's like there's no need for it that time too. Cause they're up by like right, 17 yeah. and you know, it's the Patriots cute. haven't done anything at all. Um, yeah. I think, it, I think it'd been better punt for a different situation. Like Johnson's a great punter too. Like you don't like, it's not like you had a bad punting unit at all at that point in the season either too. I think that's right. Yes. Yeah. So that that's the biggest issue is you're the Texans. You're rebuilding, like stop with your nonsense. Just, just punt the football, please. Just try to try God. to win the football game. Don't allow yeah. entropy to come in at all. <laughs> be normal for for once in your life. Uh, what was your favorite Nick Casario sign from last year? What was the best Nick Casario signing? Oh, the best Nick Casario signing. <sighs> well, I think looking at it long term, I mean, maybe the Tavier Thomas one. You know, if this is somebody who can legitimately play the slot and be a contributor moving forward. I, I think I've talked about this with you, but I think I know I've mentioned it in some of the Twitter spaces that we've had in the last six weeks. But when I think about this rebuild, I think about eventually who knows when the Texans will have 22 starting football players who are on a roster that is going to play in some kind of important football game. How many of those 22 do they have now? I would say very few. With the way Thomas played this season, especially given the value of that position, slot cornerback, they bring him in, 
show some promise, has the pick six against uh, the Chargers when the game was basically sealed up. Um, I would say that would be the one. Obviously, Burke had worked out late. Grugier Hill was a nice signing as well. Um, but I also kind of, you know, we'd all know what Burkhead is. Uh, Grugier Hill also is not like a some supreme physical talent by any means. So Thomas, based on position and what it can be moving forward, that's who I would pick. Okay. Yeah, I think with Thomas, if if I think if the Texans build a good team around Levy Smith, he's going to be a really good player for that team. Just because we saw, we haven't seen him play that many man coverage reps in the slot. Um, I like. I think I only remember like five all the time in my head, and he like one really good pass defense on one. I think defending you know Tyler Lock on a slot fade, and so I just don't know if he's good man coverage or not yet. But you know what, he's great as playing like the hook as a slot corner. He's a really great tackler, and also he's made uh, Desmond King completely expendable. You know mm-hmm. that was supposed to be Desmond King's role. He played outside corner. Desmond King was awful last year. Uh, Terrence Mitchell, they were awful last year as outside cornerbacks, and so um, Thomas has made you know King expendable. I don't see why you would keep King on this team if he's going to play outside corner. But yeah, I would think if it, it's either him or it's Malik Collins or it's Cameron Grizer Hill. But for like the purposes of what we're going to have here in the future, um, Thomas is a player who can maybe be here for the next good Texans team. Whereas I don't think Malik Collins or Cameron Grizer Hill would be on the next good Texans team though. Yeah, I think that's the tough thing about Collins, Grugier Hill. It'll be interesting to see what Casario does because they were promising. I mean, Grugier Hill objectively had a, a strong season. Collins shows his flashes. He was much better than he was, you know, that year with the Raiders. But then when you ask yourself, well, how much money do I really want to pay these guys? Because there's not a super high upside. That's when you start to that to me is the true evaluation. Like, all right, you got them on one year deals. They worked out. But how, how do you really value them from a long-term contract standpoint? Mm-hmm. And also, you've made 32 of these other ones, and these are the only three that worked out You know, of the bunch. Yeah. yeah. And I, for the record, I, I did not like Casario's 2021 strategy. I think it would have made sense if Deshaun Watson was coming back, which obviously he was you know, not coming back by that point. And so I, I, what I would have done is I would have used – the 2021 season to basically clear the decks other than Watson, because you couldn't really affect that, Mm -hmm. but just kind of clear the decks as much as possible. And to ensure that like, Hey, uh, we're not going to have a a whole bunch of dead money in 2022 as unfortunately they will. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the, the strategy I don't think was, was dumb, but how far he went with it, like sign 12 guys like that. And then don't make all these salary cap restructures where now you have the dead money for next year to create cap space to you know, sign Kevin Pierre-Lewis and you know, Jordan Jenkins and guys who don't matter at all. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, huh, I got to look at this. I know there's, there, there are tables here about you know dead cap money. but I have it here as $35 million this season in dead cap money. That's just too much for a team that's going to be going into the season with really almost no shots to even compete for the playoffs. So I, I, I did not like... Casario's strategy and philosophy, especially when it comes to like some of these restructures, Tunsil, the Shaq Lawson thing, that made no sense. Uh, Cunningham tra- didn't make any sense. Yeah, Cunningham made no sense. It was just like I don't Merciless understand. Didn't make sense. All those none of, like none of the restructures really made much sense at all. Yes, and I don't know. I know Sean and Seth uh, have done a nice job of interviewing Casario on Six Ten. I, I don't know if anyone has asked Casario directly, directly about that off-season approach because I, I just it didn't make sense to me then. And I think it actually makes a little bit less sense at this point. Yeah, I don't understand all. I talked to you know, Troy about it too whenever I went on, whenever he came on uh, this show, and he kind of like brought up like you know stuff about like cash and everything, but it still was kind of like 
you're really giving him the benefit of the doubt on it. I think it was just he wanted to sign guys for the season to be like a respectable team, and it didn't work out like the way he wanted it to. Um, so Davis Mills, what are your thoughts on Davis Mills entering the 2022 season? And as of right now on, I guess, February 16th, do you think he can be a starting caliber year-to-year uh, quarterback in the NFL? So I think with Davis Mills, I'm probably in between where a Texans fan on Twitter who is an optimist would be and where you are. I'm guesstimating where you would be on <laughs> Davis Mills. Like I, I, I'm looking at – I like the QBR stat. And yeah. Davis Mills' best games by QBR were Tennessee, the Chargers, and the Patriots. And I do think it's true that when you compare him to the rookie quarterbacks, and there were five first-round picks, obviously, I think he held his own. I don't think that's biased to be saying that. At the same time, you have, you have to evaluate upside. And I am intrigued based on what I saw late in the season, especially against Tennessee. Like, I came out of that game feeling like, boy, I, I want to see more. Through those three touchdowns, you know, then they allow the field goal late, and so they never get the ball back with a chance for him to do anything there. Um, I wanted to see more, and so I think there's something there. I think he's a little bit more mobile than I thought. I think he can make more plays a little bit off schedule than I thought, and I like the way he's handled this situation. He's handled it like a professional. Uh, he seems like he is not overwhelmed by the situation. What worries me is, Broaden the picture. Look at the AFC and where we are. Yeah. So Mahomes, uh, Burrow, Josh Allen, um, Justin Herbert, Lamar Jackson. Like they're, the price of admission at the top of the AFC is going to be really, really challenging. And we're not even factoring in like Mac Jones, Zach Wilson, uh, Trevor Lawrence. Like what is Davis Mills's upside compared to some of those guys? I think it was worth it as a third-round pick, so I give Casario credit on that. I didn't think so at the time, um, and I want to see more. And unless someone were to present me with a much more enticing proposition, I think it makes all the sense in the world for the Texans, where they are, where they are organizationally, to start him in 2022, kind of like the Eagles spends all of 2021 starting Jalen Hurts. I think mm -hmm. it's vaguely similar scenarios, hopefully with the matching of having more draft picks as a result of the Watson trade. I mean, you asked me about upside, you know, I'd be thinking about like, can he be what Kirk Cousins is? Because if he could be what Kirk Cousins is, even though a lot of people are down on Kirk, that would be a huge win as a third round pick. Objectively. Yeah, you can build a Super Bowl caliber team around Kirk Cousins on a $1.2 million salary. You know, like Kirk Cousins yes. is underrated now. It's just because he's paid $32 million is the problem. But Kirk Cousins at $22 million is an entirely different thing. Like he was a top 10 quarterback last year, you know? Yeah, he was. Absolutely. I feel like his season kind of, uh, it, it kind of flew under the radar. You're right. If you take some of these Cousins seasons, you could say you could build a team that could go deep in the playoffs around this kind of player. Now, you really need a lot of the right elements to do that. And sustaining that is going to be really hard. But that's what I would say about Davis Mills. Like, I think about when somebody like Kirk Cousins entered the NFL, or let's go with like a cross-racial comparison, which fits the Daryl Morey rule, like someone like Dak Prescott, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, different talent than Davis Mills, but they come in as like a mid-round pick, and then they play well. I mean, obviously, Mills has not played nearly as well as Dak did as a rookie, but just the principle. At some point, you're like, okay, what is this really? Like, what is this guy really? And if he keeps improving, you're like, okay, 
let's remove the draft pick and really yeah. analyze what we're seeing. Like, I, I think I would say my, my evaluation, Matt, is there's something here with this guy. And I would like to see more while still feeling like most likely I'll probably want to be drafting a quarterback of the future in a year or two. That's where I'm at. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. And like for me, I, w- I went from Davis Mills is bad. Davis Mills is awful. Davis Mills should be drafted in the third round. See, I told you Davis Mills is awful. Look how bad Davis Mills is. And then, like, in the second half of the season, once he took back over for Tyrod Taylor again, he you know, became interesting. Um, and he got a lot better from the first half to the second half. I also think, too, just he doesn't look like the same player he was at Stanford. And I don't know if it's just something how that, so? like, like, he's a lot better in the pocket. Like, you meant, like, in the pocket, he was awful at Stanford. He walked in the stacks. Um, he didn't get the ball out in time. He couldn't make his feet were messed up, and so he had a lot of, like inaccuracy problems with that. He couldn't escape the puck and make plays on the run at all. I was like watching like Zach Medenberger at times. You know his time in St- Stanford. I thought his arm was average. Um, his arm looks better in Houston already. I thought his best skill was throwing a touch down the sideline. They yeah. had a lot of problems with accuracy. You know, intermediate to pretty much any section of the field, mainly because of how bad his feet were. And so I don't know if this is something that like I just missed. Um, I'm gonna go back and watch some some Matt Waldman YouTube videos, you know, sometime in the near future, and see if maybe I missed something because I know reading him and paying attention to his stuff, he liked Davis Mills more than Zach Wilson, and yeah. so maybe it's just a, a limited you know, view that I missed something with it. So I'm interested to kind of go back and watch and revisit that portion of it. But yeah, Mills went from unplayable and ghastly and awful to an interesting player, and I think at a bare minimum, you know, next year he goes into this season with some level of quarterback competition, with some veteran quarterback, and then if it doesn't work out and you have a top five pick, then you can take quarterback in 2023, and yes. now he's not the worst backup in the world to have for two more seasons after that. And that's you know fully worth the third-round pick, and um, it's amazing how much different he looked from week five to you know week 17. And I'm also interested to see what he could do in more of a like spread passing attack too. Because like that Titans yes. game was all about, we're down. Now Tim Kelly's running the offense that Deshaun Watson should have ran all along that he used in 2021. And he was awesome in it, you know? And having like some level of slot receiving ability with Amandela uh, made a big difference in that game too. So I'm interested. I don't know if he's going to be a, a starting quarterback at all, but he's definitely playable now, which is a, a far cry from where he was, you know, at the first half of his starting jaunt. The, uh, the last part you mentioned is also interesting, that in the Tennessee game, when they came back in the second half, they spread it out, they went with the tempo, they were not running a two-minute drill necessarily, but like th- their pace was a lot better. And that's been the case seemingly you know, with Deshaun, with Davis Mills now, that they run better with tempo. And l- listen, I, it's this offense is going to have severe talent limitations in 2022, barring something really surprising. And so I, I'm not saying that they can run this exclusively and have a whole lot of success, but I do think for someone like Pep, Pep Hamilton, you have to look at that and say, okay, we got to get this offense going. That when you're just huddling up and taking you know, 30 seconds between plays with this kind of talent deficit, that may not be the most advantageous situation to move the ball down the football field. Yeah, and it's funny too, because we've been talking about this for probably seven years, you know? Like I, like I, you know, going back to like the 14 season we talked about some, I know internally, the biggest thing was probably that Watson Colts playoff loss where they're down by 21, they're walking up to the ball over and over again. Yes. And that Steelers loss in 2020 was also a great example of that where they're stopped the entire game. They go spread, no huddle. They score easy yep. um, on both those drives. They had like that and they end up losing that game going back to that same plotting, you know, rushing attack. 
And to do, I, I think sometimes in football, like the offenses make it harder on themselves. And I don't think it's an accident that sometimes late in these games where you're like, all right, we got four downs to gain 10 yards, or we're going to go with tempo, that it becomes easier for these offenses. Again, I don't know if they can sustain it over 60 minutes, but the ability to like, like if you're, if you don't have a lot of talent or a really good quarterback, the idea of sitting there and like, going into the huddle and taking a lot of time between plays and lining up and establishing a ground attack. You have to have high, really high quality schemes and, and players mm-hmm. to be able to execute something like that, which the, the, the Texans, I don't think do at this point, certainly. Yeah. Or just an offensive line that can block one run scheme. Well, which they haven't had, you know, in a very long time, very long time, basically 10 years at this point. <laughs> uh, so going back, I want to about David Coley now, that whole process and Levy. Yes. Uh, Rest but in peace. what was your favorite moment of the David Coley era? Do you have a favorite call or quote or decision? Uh, are you going to miss David Coley? Uh, I actually kind of miss him slightly because it was such a weird experience. I would say my favorite moment was his decision in the uh, in the Browns game where – what did he do? He accepted the penalty and then he he punted the football anyway or he declined, he declined the, penalty. the penalty. He declined the, <laughs> yeah. the penalty and, and, and he punted anyway where it's like, dude, uh, you, you accept the penalty or you go and you go for it. Like why would, why would you ever decline an offsides penalty – uh, and just put the football away. Like it was just like, it was, it was so ridiculous. It's like you could, well, what was it? It was, I'm going to get this wrong. It, I think it, it was like third and 15. It was third and 15. And they and got so, like, yeah, they got uh, 13, 13 yards. And they had they like got, fourth and two. Yes. So they had fourth and two. Uh, they declined the penalty. Uh, and then they, then they punt anyway in fourth and two, like they could have declined the penalty, but still go like, it just made no sense. It, well, just made, it made no sense to anyone who's ever watched like an individual football game. Before. <laughs> and the funniest part too, is that he went back and talked about after the game and he was like, cause this is my favorite moment too. And after the game, he talks about, I was like, yeah, I mean, if I go back and do it, I would have accepted the penalty and taken third and 10. It's like, no. Even that's still the wrong decision. <laughs> yes. You decline the penalty. You go for it on fourth and two. That's yes. the right decision. Yeah. And still, after all that thinking about it afterwards, he still came out with the wrong decision. Um, <laughs> I, I don't know. The goal, the Cole experience was ridiculous. I think it was one of those things where he was not in a good spot at all to win football games. He wasn't here to win football games. He was here to correct the culture. And I thought he would probably be here for 2022 when he was first hired. But Me then too. after like the Cleveland game, and you just see that the bare minimum parts of the game as far as in-game decisions and coaching decisions and where you're putting players and the offense and defense they're running, it was just so far and away uh, elementary and, and not competent at all that it became clear that he had to be fired after this season. Yeah, I'm curious what led to that decision because that takes us into a whole other position because I think when they fired David Culley, they had a different idea of where they were going to go at head coach. Um Sean Pendergast wrote about this a few weeks ago, and he really framed it well in the Houston press. He wrote that David Culley came across like somebody who won a contest to become an NFL head coach. Mm -hmm. And it's really the best way I can explain it. And it kind of drives me nuts. Like I, the radio work I do now is for Mad Dog Sports Radio on Sirius XM. And some of the hosts on there, especially Mad Dog, like he, he Mad Dog, for some reason, has gotten really angry about the Culley firing. And he keeps kind of bringing it up. And he's like, they gave Culley a raw deal and all this. And I'm like, you guys don't understand because you didn't have to watch all these <laughs> games. You weren't with us for these, you know, 17 weeks, uh, 18 weeks watching all of this and looking at the weird sideline expressions and the, the post-game interviews and the pre-game interviews and the during-the-week interviews. I just 
you know, I, I think David Culley is somebody who he was a position coach in the NFL for a long time for a reason, which is I think that's the level where he kind of belonged. And that sounds very critical, but that's just my my evaluation of him as a coach. He never struck me as a head coach type. I felt like 2021 was very much like a CEO kind of thing where he was overseeing the operation. Lovey's running the defense, Kelly and Pepper running the offense, and he's just kind of overseeing all of it and not really putting his imprints on. But, you know, let's put it this way. If, if this was such an egregious firing by the Texans, then somebody would have, somebody would have interviewed David Culley to be their head coach, which we all know is never, ever, ever going to happen. Or even like be a position coach because even that hasn't happened yet. Yes, even that hasn't happened. Now, maybe David wants to take his reported possibly $22 million and kind of chill in Tennessee, which <laughs> good for him. Uh, but you're right. He has not been – he has not bounced back and gotten a job immediately. That's for certain. Yeah, that was one of those things where just seeing the national media landscape, you know, calling about uh, the Cole firing being, you know, a disservice to him and how unfair this is and using that as like another, you know – uh, cornerstone of the inequality problem in the NFL. It's like you can watch football. Like you didn't watch every Texans game, and it was pretty obvious that you know Coley was completely out of place and was over his head in Houston. And if you want to find, there's plenty of other examples that you know show inequality in the NFL. And if you're using David Coley to point that out, you're not doing a very good job at your at your role that you at you have. And so I just think the problem is that people don't watch football, but they talk about football. You know. Yeah, I think that, that that's fair. And in, in fairness, it's, it's hard to watch all 32 teams. It's just that, you know, with David Culley, did he do a bad job this past season? No, of course not. But I don't even know what he really contributed to the four wins they got. And, and let's be realistic here. David Culley was not fired because of poor performance. He wasn't fired because they went 4-13 and 13 versus two wins or eight wins yeah. or whatever. He was fired because they thought that they were going to transition to their guy, which I don't think they did, but I think that was the main reason for the firing a month plus ago. Interesting. Because like, I thought he was fired just because uh, he couldn't do the bare minimum parts of the job at all. Not even, not even thinking about you know, who sure. they had lined up as the next head coach. Because um, like after week ten, I was like, yeah, they should fire him because he can't do this job at all, and uh, it's kind of turned to something else. So since the conclusion of the season, he was fired. They try to find a new head coach. Um, they officially interviewed Joe Lombardi, Heinz Ward, Brian Flores, Josh McCown, Kevin O'Connell, Jonathan Gannon. Only to not hire any of these candidates at all whatsoever. Um, so Mike, who do you think was the candidate that the Texans were looking to hire after they fired David Coley? I think Josh McCown was a strong candidate. Um, some of the Twitter accounts, which claim or seem to have slight inside information kind of framed it after the hiring went down. Like this was a McCown Easterby versus Nick Casario, Jonathan Gannon decision. I don't know enough to, to, to paint it in that way. I do think they had legitimate interest in, in, in Gannon. And I, I am still kind of curious why, like, I, I understand why they pivoted from Josh McCown. That makes sense given the climate and the, and the Flores lawsuit. It has never been made clear to me why. Gannon didn't get the job because, I mean, even though he's a white guy, um, he would have been someone who has actual NFL coaching experience. He was a defensive coordinator for the last year. Um, I know there were some rumblings that Gannon wanted more control over the coaching staff, um, which I know is another issue with this regime. Yeah, I mean, I, I think simply stated, I would put it this way. If not for Brian Flores suing the NFL and three teams, and I guess he's going to add the Texans, I believe they would have hired Josh McCown. That is my take on it. And I think the, the, the lawsuit uh, caused them to pivot off of that position. I absolutely do not think that they fired David Culley to then hire Lovey Smith. 
I think if they were going to hire Lovey Smith, it would have made a lot more sense to do that uh, a year ago to have him go through this. So I think clearly something happened over this coaching search, and there's no way I am buying what they are selling publicly about it. Interesting. So you just mean like from a legal standpoint, if they did hire McCallan, there's a chance the Texans would be you know fined at all, or the NFL had some sort of you know a harder problem to defend themselves in a lawsuit. Like what do you think would have been the ramifications if they did hire Josh McCallan? Well, based on the report that the Texans hire Lovey Smith, they're going to be added as a law as a defendant in the lawsuit. I guess it doesn't matter. But I I, I was thinking more about the climate that. <sighs> And I'd love to know what Josh thinks about this situation because, like, everybody likes Josh McCown, and due to his connection with the Texans the last 13 months, it's almost like he has absorbed some of their bad name onto him, Mm -hmm. which is kind of weird. Um, I just think after the Flores lawsuit, it would have been so difficult to justify hiring McCown that I don't know how they would have done it. I just, and I also wonder, like, with all due respect to the coaching potential that Josh McCown may have, would that reaction have been so vociferous and unyielding that it almost would have cut off McCown's credibility at the knees through really no fault of his own, Mm. mostly, even though he didn't take a coaching job this past year. So I, I wonder about it from that standpoint, that once Brian Flores filed that lawsuit, well, gosh, how could they possibly, it was gonna be hard aside from that to justify McCown. But after that, when the spotlight was really put on the NFL, that would have been a really brutal public relations scenario for them. Yeah. Yeah. I get that makes sense. I, I guess I just wondered like what the ramification could have been, but if it's just a handicaps, the head coach that you hire in that spot um, and they were maybe possibly getting ready to give it to him. You know, I could see that. I could see that point. I know whenever Casera talked to, I guess it was to Seth and Sean about, you know, McCown, he was asked about, he mentioned the NBA a lot about all these NBA coaches who just come yes. in and coach these teams. And it's like, I think he really kind of wanted McCown has thought a lot about doing this, even though I don't think it would work in the NFL landscape just because of, I, I think coaches probably, the head coach probably works more than the players do. And I think it'd be a shock to a guy who's never coached in the NFL at all to see the hours and time that go into it. Um, I think it would have just been a disaster. McCown was the head coach for that reason. I guess, see, I'm kind of of a a few mindsets on it because I agree with what you're saying, Matt, that even though McCown's been around professional football for basically 20 years now, how could he really know the ins and outs of what being a head coach is like? And something that concerned me was Josh McCown has never had anybody report to him, like just in a job, just in a normal job. And there's something to that, managing people. You know, he'd be a head coach where he'd have not only the roster basically reporting to him, but all of his assistant coaches, all the the, the support staff as well. It's just it's almost unprecedented. I think you have to go back to like Norm Van Brocklin or something like that to have an an equivalent move. Um, Now, at the same time, like I do kind of wonder, uh, you know, how how bad could it possibly have been relative to David Culley? Because I imagine what they would have done is. McCown is head coach, Lovey is defensive coordinator, somebody somebody is the OC. So like how weird or bad could it look relative to the yeah. gaffes that we see every NFL Sunday? I I don't know these questions, the answers to these questions, but boy, that that complete lack of experience was was a tough one, I think. Yeah. And it's like his only coaching experience is coaching a high school football team. And like those guys work long hours. They work really hard, but it's not the same extent that yeah, it's not uh, like this. NFL coaches do it. Like I've heard, you have read stuff that Peter King has wrote, you know, talking to coaches. It's like they work four o'clock to midnight and they sleep in the office and 
they they gain a bunch of weight and they're tired all the time and mm-hmm. you know everything like they probably work harder than they actually should you know there's not need for a thing to a certain extent but probably i think it's just a grind you know they they put themselves through you know yeah i think that's right and I'd love to get Nick Casario's honest take on this because, you know, organizationally and sort of big picture wise, um, did Nick Casario spend 20 years working with the Patriots so that he could get a GM job in the NFL, make a lot of money yeah. and have his first two hires be, with all due respect, David Cully and Lovey Smith? It's crazy. I would, I would think the answer to that would be no, which makes me wonder, and this is the other big picture part, okay, what happens now? What phase are we in now of the Texans rebuild? And if Lovey's not there in a couple of years, does Casario get a chance to hire a third head coach at that point? Yeah, and that's the thing I've been thinking about too. It's like, is Casario, regardless of the flip and the tampering charges and, um, and the Easterby connection that kind of brought him here to begin with, he was still like a well-respected you know, personnel guy in the NFL. And it's yes. not like eventually he would have had the chance to be the general manager of a football team, Somewhere. whether it was Houston or wherever else. But he chose here. I think he chose here because he probably had felt like he had better job security here than he would maybe in Carolina or a place like that where you get one shot at and that's it. And maybe he feels like with Eastby and the McNairs, he can get you know six, seven years, whatever it takes to make this thing happen. But yeah, it still is bizarre that after all that and being in this spot finally finally after working this hard for it, it's Coley, it's Lovey Smith, and he is probably gonna hire another coach and you know, two years or three years later from this, um, is but you know, I, my guess is probably be like two years from now, he's gonna be hiring another head coach all over again. Yeah, I think that's right. And it almost makes you feel like they wasted last year. But but I think really like I don't think Lovey wanted to be the head coach. I don't have any reporting or proof of this, but I I, I I would love to know what's happened in the last, you know, 10 to 12 <laughs> days. But I feel like they kind of had to convince Lovey to do this with more than just money. Uh, I think that's why Lovey remains the defensive coordinator and wants to mm. call plays on defense, because I think that's what he wants to do. Interesting. Yeah. And it's funny because it's like you think every single time you think like you're past all the nonsense with the football team. And it's like, OK, now it's going to be a little bit normal. Uh, now that it can just be about football and everything else, it's like, no, here's a head coaching search that lasts three weeks. They hire, all, they interview all these guys. None of the guys that they want show up. The guy they want to hire, they can't hire. And now they have to hire Lovey Smith in house um, immediately on a Monday, and then hire him that next night. You know, yes, like it's it's insane. It keeps happening over and over and over again to this team. It's just weird that they can't operate like a normal NFL franchise. And maybe we're that we're like in that interim period that the 49ers had when they went to, you know, from Harbaugh to Tom Sula to Chip Kelly. And then, you know, eventually they got it to where, okay, we kind of cleared the decks. Now our job's more attractive. We'll go out and hire Kyle Shanahan. Ideally, the Texans are in that spot in a couple of years. But yeah, you're right. I mean, it's it's like they they have not ever since Brian Gain got fired or Jack used to be got hired, you know, pick which one. They have not operated like a normal NFL franchise, and that has continued into this coaching search and hiring of Lovey Smith. I think it's impossible to disagree with that. This is not how a normal functioning organization operates. Yeah, and we had a question from at found of HOU Sports, and he asked, do you have any insight at all to the league-wide perception of the Texans head coaching job compared to other openings? Well, I don't think it was held in very high regard. I mean – First of all, if you look at their if they're if you look at their uh, candidates list and just their finalists, like like let's look at this. It's an absurd list of candidates. It's it's a very. I understand like casting a wide net, you know, and that sort of thing. Like you get one of those, but just Joe Lombardi's like you didn't watch football last year. Heinz Ward's insane. (laughs) Um, And like Josh McCown's insane, even as like an off hiring, not even to get to the final spot. 
Um, the other guys make sense. I think Gann just like interviewed well and surprised him and made a little bit better than they expected. Um, O'Connell seemed like the type of guy who was never going to go to Houston just because of like his Agreed. acumen and everything else. Kind of like Staley last year. Yeah, and like O'Connell, I think, is in a perfect po- uh, spot going to Minnesota too. Agreed. And so like now you look for Flores, who seems like the ideal person, just you know considering the the mash of styles and uh, the New England ties, and then you know that didn't work out as well either. So. And I never got the sense, and this is just purely a sense thing, I never got the sense that they were going to hire Brian Flores, lawsuit, not lawsuit. I just never, I, I know some people link them together, especially with some of this Watts and stuff, but I was like, that's never happening. And I just, I never got the feeling that was going to be a, a fit. But yeah, you, you compare their finalists to some of the guys who got hired. Like, I mean, it's the NFL head coaching cycle. So most of these guys are going to fail. We know that. But the Texans, they couldn't lure a Brian Dayball. Uh, I don't think they could have lured a Mike McDaniel here. So I don't think the job is held in very high regard. And I, I don't think it's going to be held in high regard until they start to remake this roster. And it looks like a more appealing situation. Yeah. And that's kind of like at the end of the day, what matters, you know, it's getting good players Like the head coaching yes. thing. I think a lot of it's like a distraction for what really matters. And that's the draft and free agency for this team. But it still is like, we keep trying to hope this team like crawls out of the mud of, uh, just the mess and, and the silliness, and this is another example of it. So with Lovey Smith here, I know a lot of people are excited about Lovey Smith. Um, it's been one of the most absurd things I've ever seen, you know, writing about the Texans and being a fan of this football team because Lovey Smith at Tampa, you know, had two bad years there. They fire him to build around Jameis. The year after he leaves, they become second in the league in turnovers force with Mike Smith. Um, then he goes to Illinois, gets his ass kicked. Yep. He came here last year as the D.C. guy's ass kicked. Like they spot drop cover two for half the season and then switched to a cover three team that wasn't very good at, but it was like, at least they changed it up. Like it took them like nine weeks for them to run defensive coverages and plays. There's like, <laughs> Oh, I've, I see other teams do this, you know, but they and, started eventually. Yeah. Like it was the most elementary defense I've ever watched my entire life at this level. You know, we're like, it's kind of nice if you want to like learn more about coverages and stuff. Cause you can just watch Levy spin like, okay, that's that, that's that, that's that. And, uh, and like they became more of an NFL defense and, you know, the second half of the season, but it still wasn't a good defense. It was based around, entirely around creating turnovers. Um, and, you t- and like you look at Chicago Bears teams, it's a team with incredible talent. And that's what the most important you know, part of it is too. So they've kind of fallen backwards into Levy Smith. Um, are you excited for the chance to, to watch a Levy Smith coach football team in 2022? Not really, although I will say this, and I don't think this take is really up your alley, but... You know, who knows? The The advantage of Lovey Smith is that for the first time in a while, the Texans have a professional communicator uh, who can who is a legitimate football pro who has been around this for a long time, who has a legitimate resume. Uh, this is somebody who was a uh, when you look at Lovey's resume, this guy was a defense. He was a defensive coordinator who led a team to a Super Bowl. He was a head coach of one as well. He's been a head coach numerous places. He comes across like a normal professional. So there's not going to be this whole David Culley, the whole Sean Pendergast, like, hey, you want a contest to be an NFL head coach. You listened to Lovey last week, and I think this is what took people back, was like, God, it's been a while since a Texans head coach, you know, sounded normal. (laughs) And he acknowledged that, like, hey, the fan atmosphere in 2021 was not good, and they need to make it better. Uh, I actually liked 
what Lovey said to Albert Breer in MMQB this week. I don't know if you caught that, but he was uh, on the Deshaun thing. He was basically like, yeah, we want a resolution and we want a resolution pretty fast. We understand that there's been this, you know, year long thing, but at some point, like we have to move forward. I'm like, God, okay. We're acknowledging, <laughs> we're acknowledging reality, yeah, which, yeah. I, which I, I don't think they do. And, you know, Casario is, is, is kind of an oddball in his own way. And I think sometimes his communication style, like sort of like, some of his points kind of like flow. Uh, what's the phrase I'm looking for? They, they like go over people's heads at times with some of his analogies. You listen to Lovey and you're like, okay, this is a legitimate football professional. He has been a head coach. Nothing is going to be way out of the ordinary. And so they will have a sense of normalcy. And I was thinking about this, Matt, because what, every, everything that was going on in 19 and 20, like they may not win any games this year or very few of them, but at least it's going to be sort of a much more normal copacetic situation. It will be the polar opposite of anything that was going on in 2020 with this team in 2022. Polar opposite. That makes sense. And I mean, I, I guess the one thing that really kind of like, aside from what he, what, what Levy Smith has done the last, you know, 10, 12 years as a, as a professional football coach and college head coach, um, the one thing that also kind of drove me crazy was just the inter- like his uh, his press conference with the Texans. Not even like the fire alarm, the the crying child at all, but it was like listening to David Coley's all over again. It was just deja vu, where he represent. You know, he talks about well, there's only 32 of these, and we're gonna run the football, we're gonna uh, win football games the right way. You know, it was like the exact same stuff all over again. And so that part of it was just you know really off putting for. Me as somebody who's going to watch, you know, 17 more of these games um, this year as well, too. But I do, like, give credence to the fact, like, he's done before. He's a professional. And I think the best way it's been summarized to me is what, you know, you told me probably a few weeks ago that Pep Hamilton and Levy Smith is an upgrade over David Coley and uh, Tim Kelly. And I completely yeah. agree. Like, that's the one benefit, I think, to having, you know, Hamilton and Smith is that it's an upgrade over the previous coaching staff. But I do think the one thing that Texans missed out on by hiring Levy is they lost a chance, to like kind of get like a McVay type, or you know, even yes. like, not, like not even someone like obviously McVay's, you know, has been a Hall of Fame level head coach so far, you know, and he's thirty six years old. I don't mean like that level, but just the type of archetype of a coach where you're getting a young guy or a new guy who hasn't had a chance yet, and now you have a chance where your football team is growing with your head coach into something. And now it's we have this guy for a year, two years, and now we're going to get a new head coach in two years, and that's the coaching hire that we need to nail while we build up talent stuff in the meantime. And so it's like it's all going to be switched over. It's going to be a new culture, new philosophy, um, new players that you're trying to put into schemes all over again rather than just like building that right now for something that you want to be good two or three years from now. That is 100% right. And the way I've thought about it, Matt, is when an NFL team hires a coach, whether this actually happens or not, there's the optimism at the start that we are hiring this guy because he can be one day a top five NFL head coach. And you can look at the resume and figure out why that's the case. And I think that's the case for everybody who hired a head coach this cycle Minus the Texans. Now, there are some retreads in there like McDaniels and Dennis Allen. But those guys have had high level success as coordinators in the NFL. Doug Peterson also. He's won a Super Bowl as a head coach. And so each of those hires, you can envision a world in which those teams hired a an eventual top five NFL head coach. That's what you would like to do, that you hire them and you're like, okay, one day I can see that happening. That is that would go against all NFL history for that to happen with Lovey Smith, because you know, things kind of wore out their course uh, in Chicago. He did not do a good job in Tampa. 
even if it doesn't matter, he did not do a good job at Illinois. And for somebody like Lovey Smith at his age, at the age of 63, he'll be 64 before next season, to turn into a top five NFL head coach would basically be unprecedented. There are guys who are older who become really good coaches, the Bruce Arians types. But those are guys who you look at their resume and you're like, hey, uh, somebody should have hired Bruce yeah. way earlier than this. Like the NFL just missed on this. That obviously is not the case with Lovey, who's been a head coach in the NFL before, you know, for long stretches of time. So that that you and I are on the complete exact same page that when you when your NFL team hires a head coach, you want to have the hope one day this will be one of the best coaches in football with Lovey Smith based on history. That is almost impossible to predict. Yeah, or happen, I should say. Yeah, it'd be like aliens falling out of the sky. You know, like something that had to happen for Levy Smith to be, you yes. know, a top five head coach in a year or two. And it's also like, it just seems like the game has passed him by. Um, I've been watching you know, a bunch of scheme videos of some of these playoff defenses, you know, while I work into other things. And it's just, it's hilarious how complicated some of this stuff is, you know, and how many schemes and tags and calls and everything they make. And then you watch it, Houston did last year. And it's it's two entirely different sports. And so, and like he's also going to call plays this upcoming season as well. And it's just very archaic and Jurassic um, with Lovey Smith here for the 2022 season. I don't like Lovey not hiring a defensive coordinator. Um, and I wonder if that, those were one of the terms and conditions of him taking that job. Just because if I'm the Texans, along the same theme here, I would I would think, okay, well, obviously Pep is being groomed as the OC. We'll see what happens there. I'd like to groom somebody else as the defensive coordinator. Um, but they're obviously not going to do that with Lovey. His son's the there. His son can eventually do it. Yeah, his son is there. You are <laughs> correct. So I, I, I would have uh, just like if this is what we're doing, if we're just going to go with this, you know, compromised candidate for the next couple of years, I would have liked to have parlayed that into, well, let's see if we can develop some guys at the coordinator spots, um, sort of a version of what Dallas has done in the last year. But that's not going to happen at the D.C. spot. Yeah. And he said in the in the press conference as well, too, that he's in called plays and run the defense and. Everybody was shocked that he was actually going to do it. It's like, yeah, it seems like he knows this. He feels like he knows this stuff, and uh, he's going to do this because he's an expert in it, you know. And that's what he wants to do too. So yeah, I think that was him basically saying, "All right, Cal, Jack, Nick, if you want me to do this, uh, that's fine. But I'm going <laughs> to tell you, I'm going to be running this defense and calling the plays. So just so you know, this is how this is going to work. Yeah, fire me tomorrow if you don't agree with this because I'm saying exactly. this right now. Yes, yes. Uh, yeah, so, by, by the way, like real quick, we, we have not addressed this part. Like as far as the overall hiring, remember how Nick Casario talked about Lovey when they fired David Cully? It did not come across like a completely ringing endorsement of a guy who was certainly going to be back the next season, even as defensive coordinator. And now he's the head coach. What did he say about Lovey whenever he talked about him? He was pretty. I think he was a little vague. He was basically like, "Yeah, I learned some stuff from Lovey because he brought, you know, his elements uh, of the Tampa two defense. I haven't really been accustomed to that, um, and so we kind of grew together. Uh, but it wasn't like it just the way it's hockey. It was one of those things where when I was listening to it, it kind of made my eyebrow raise a little bit. Like, are we definitely sure Lovey's coming back? And I think he would have been, mm -hmm. uh, but he was not talking about him like someone who was going to be a finalist for the head coaching position. Certainly yeah. not at that level. Or even interview for the head coaching position. Yes, exactly. Yes. Um, I do think if they hired like Gannon or Flores, he wouldn't have been here as the DC at all. But if they hired McCown, there's a chance he would have been. I don't. Yes. I personally didn't see the reason to bring him back after how this defense looked last year and, and the schemes that they were running. And just again, like it was like watching the Old Testament, you know? Like it's it can be very beautiful if it's run very well. <laughs> um, and there's like a, a infiniteness to the metaphors behind it, 
But it's like when you have Christian Kirksey running the seam and you don't know how to pass off two wide receivers at the safety position and you can't get front four passers. Like even running that defense going to week one was absurd and they still did it for, you know, eight weeks last year. But do you think that a superior defensive coordinator would have done a, an appreciably better job given the talent limitations? I don't think much better at all, but it's like they just did the same thing that didn't work for nine weeks, you know? Okay. And, uh, and it was just so basic. Yes. And, like, it just didn't match the personnel. Like, I think what Brian Flores did would make more sense for the Texans last year. Just blitz the hell out of the quarterback and be yeah, very confusing, sense. be very complicated up front. I think that's fair. Um, so I got two Smith questions for you, and then we'll move on. How long do you think Smith lasts in Houston? And do you think Lovey Smith will ever coach a winning football team in Texas? I'm going to say he lasts two years, maybe three. I say he will not coach a winning Texans football team. Yeah, I agree. I say he coaches two, and he won't coach a winning Texans team, unless like Davis Mills becomes like a top 12 quarterback or a yeah. top 16 quarterback. I think that's right. Um, so I think that's right. We have one. I was going to talk about Pep Hamilton a little bit, but just because of time, I don't want to go a whole lot into it. My big thing about the Hamilton stuff, though, is I just don't know. Like, he's run one good offense, and that was in 2014 with Andrew Luck. I don't know what Pep Hamilton offense is in 2022. I don't think the Herbert stuff matters very much because Herbert's transcendent, and you can't name his quarterback's coach this past year, and he was a. You know, a top seven quarterback and is incredible. <laughs> I think he's a guy who's better than his coaching. And even a Joe Lombardi offense that consistently limited him, he was still very good. Uh, but we had a question from at SWE Frederick. He said, thoughts on Davis Mills and Pep system? Again, I don't know what it's going to look like because I don't know how much I can take out of what Pep did at Indy or what Pep did at Michigan as well. Uh, Pep has a weird resume in that he's pretty well respected and yet you look under the surface and you're like, are we sure he did a good job in Indianapolis? The Michigan thing didn't really work out as well. Um, so I don't know what his plan is. Um, I don't think he's going to run as much of a pass-happy attack as he did with Andrew Luck. Certainly, that's not going to happen. Um, it seems like he's a, he's pretty good in ter- as, as far as how you can measure these things about developing and teaching and coaching quarterbacks. Because Tim Kelly was so inept, even someone like me, not a film guy like you can tell, this run game is either scheme properly, improperly, coached improperly, or a combination thereof. I want to know, like, what is Pep's plan when it comes to the running game and the play action? And what does he want to do? Does he want to run power? Does he want to run some other scheme, zone? Does he want how much up-tempo does he want to use? Going back to that conversation. So I don't know what to expect, but I think they had maxed out whatever they were going to do under, under Tim Kelly so having Pep as the OC, I think, makes a lot of sense if this was what's going to happen with Lovey at head coach. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's my biggest hope for Pep is that he's historically run at power run offense. And, like, at least we know, hey, this is what we're going to get players to do. Because Tim Kelly had the same problems that Bill O'Brien had where they try to run a little bit of everything. You know, they run inside zone, they run wide zone, they run toss plays, they run you know, trap and counter, and they weren't good at any of it all whatsoever. And, like, the Texans running back class or running backs that they had on the roster last year are a perfect example of that. You know, having guys with four different styles that the offensive line can't block any of them at all uh, well whatsoever. So, like, I would like to see – I think I'm interested in Pep for that reason. Um, but, yeah, just, like, historically the performance isn't all uh, really there. And even, like, the 2014 Colts team, the best offense the Colts could have run would have been Bruce Arians's, you know, vertical passing attack with uh, Andrew Luck that almost killed him his rookie year. Mm-hmm. But like that was the best passing attack for you know, Luck, and they have doing this other thing because that's what 
uh, they have with Hamilton there. So I know I'm interested just because it's gonna be better than Kelly probably, and just because I want to see like a power run scheme or just the offense just being married to one run scheme instead of trying to do 70, 17 different things that they're all bad at. Yeah, even though they had changes with the coaches, it still it still felt like last year they had some of the same warts of the Bill O'Brien offenses and especially the run game specifically where it's like, well, we're going to change our game plan. We're going to be very, you know, opponent specific. And it's like, okay, that sounds great in theory until you can't actually run anything and you you have no bread and butter every single week. Mm -hmm. I would like them to have some kind of bread and butter they can go to. Probably a lot to ask given personnel, but that's what I would like. Yeah, I agree. And it's funny the Titans fans are very happy about Tim Kelly because of how bad uh, Downing was last year. It's like, he's awful too. You know, get ready for it. It's going to be bad there. So they think that, that Tim Kelly's going to come in and rescue them. They're excited. Like, they're excited about Tim Kelly because of 2020, like Deshaun like, what, Watson season. I, I love some of these fans. It's like, what, what, like, what, what is Tim Kelly going to do? Go, go to Nashville and turn Ryan Tannehill into, you know, Matt Stafford? Like, what, what is he going to do? Is he going to turn water into wine? Like, what are they expecting here? I have no idea. They should have fired Downing, though. Um, and going back to the bread and butter thing, <laughs> I wanted to bring up real fast. I think like that's like that was the thing about Matt Stafford though, you know, like McVay had the bread and butter as wide zone play action passing attack, and what Stafford allowed them to do was to go into a shotgun spread attack, yeah. um, go five wide and be able to win and actually hit the downfield throws that Goff couldn't make. And so like, with Goff, like he could do the bread and butter, but whenever that didn't work, they had no options or yes. answers to it. And like that's what Stafford opened the door for. And like we saw, you know, immediately this year, and like the game I always think about with Jared Goff, I think it was. The year after they lost in the Super Bowl, which I guess was the 19th season, week one they played Carolina, and they tried to run like a spread passing attack, and Goff just got his ass kicked, and they scored like six points in the first half. Mm. In the second half, they just went right back to their regular offense, the wide zone play action stuff, and they ended up coming back and winning. And like that's the difference between you know Stafford and Goff and why you know, the Rams ended up winning a Super Bowl. That is a, that's a good illustration. I feel like I, I learned something from that explanation. It's a, If you have NFL Game Pass, watch week one, Los Angeles, uh, Carolina, after they lost the Super Bowl. <laughs> and uh, that's one of the things that you get from watching a bunch of condensed that, games. That's some real homework right there. That's like, let, let's go read primary sources from the 1700s yeah, yeah, kind yeah. of level. I like that. Diaries <laughs> from the Alamo. Yes, uh, exactly. So this offseason, there's two big kind of like impending things right now. One's the Deshaun Watson trade, and two is like, you know, we both agree the Texans should trade Laramie Tunsil, even though the Laramie Tunsils out there will never just admit defeat on it. Um, so with Watson, we had a, a comment here from at Hurt Locker Room, and they asked, with so much potential quality quarterback movement, how do you see impacting the return the Texans could get for Deshaun Watson? So this is the game of musical chairs at quarterback. I, I'm not too concerned about it, just, well... Part of it is I don't know what the tolerance is for some of these teams with Deshaun. Like I've always felt like Carolina is one that had more tolerance for where things were at and settling his sexual assault allegation cases, whereas Miami obviously was not. It certainly feels the last week or two that Miami is out on those sweepstakes. It feels like they're gonna you know stick with Tua for whatever reason. Um, so Carolina, I know it came out on. Wednesday of this week that Deshaun's camp is looking at Minnesota and Tampa, which is hilarious. Uh, what like, makes it hilarious? What, well, like that's what he sat out a year for. Yeah, Minnesota. Like, he lost a year of his life, like a year of his prime, to yeah. go play for the Minnesota Vikings. That would be a weird one to me. Um, even though I think they have real offensive talent, obviously. Uh, I for some reason I could see Tampa. I have no proof of this. 
I could see Tampa being an organization that, that's like, you know what? We're in a Super Bowl window anyway. I, I have no idea how this would work with a salary cap. I, I, I admit I have not looked into that. But they're in a Super Bowl window. They have clearly the most talented roster in that division. So I could see Tampa being a team where they would be willing to trade for Deshaun without a ton of assurances for uh, on his legal situation. But, you know, they're going to be, be picking late in the first round. Uh, with the with the compensation matchup to what Casario wanted, I'm I'm less sure about that part. Yeah, and well, I just also like when I think about what Watson held out for, and like what team he could be traded for, what market he would be traded for. The Minnesota Vikings are maybe like the 27 team, you know, that you'd expect or whatever him to go to. And it's like you know, Watson, I don't think has ever even played a season where we really know what he is or how good he could be. I feel like his whole career has been a real like what if so far Mm -hmm. Um, from the ACL tear to the Bill O'Brien issues to, you know, his own like decision to sit out last year's own trade request. And so him going to like, you know, Minnesota or Cleveland or a team like that, regardless of like the personnel fit and talent they have is just like hysterical in its own right. You know, it's funny in the context context of him and wanting, you know, Miami for the longest time, because when you think about a team like Minnesota, I would ask the question, okay, if, if a team like Minnesota is in play, then why would the Pittsburgh Steelers not be a team that's yeah. completely in play? Mm-hmm. Uh, historic franchise, it's warmer there than it is in Minnesota, uh, a team that I think is ready to win. Like that, um, th- that would be an odd one to me. That, yeah. that would be an odd one. Just, just like why Minnesota over a team like Pittsburgh? Yeah, I agree. Um, so I do think it's like, I think it kind of goes Rodgers, and then from there things will kind of, uh, plug and play. I think Wilson will stay in Seattle again, but the Rodgers thing is kind of the big one, and I think from yep. there it will make more sense once Rodgers makes his mind if he goes to Denver, Green Bay, or whatever else he decides to do. Um, so with Watson, though, what's your what's your Watson trade idea at the moment? In, in terms of what I want to get for him? Or yeah, like who would you want to trade him to, and what would, what would it take for uh, you to trade him as well? I would like to trade Watson to the Panthers, or the New York the New York football giants because they have high draft picks. Carolina, I could theoretically get the number six pick. Um, I could, you know, get some of their future first rounders, and I'm picking high enough to where I feel like I can extract real value. Giants, same concept. They have five and seven. I don't know if they'd be willing to give up both, but even if you got one of those plus their extra first rounders, I would say based on how high they are drafting plus being in the other conference. I would go with those teams. Another one, by the way, that came to me, like if Minnesota is one he's thinking about, why not Washington? Yeah, Washington's great too. I mean, Washington, I think they have a pretty solid roster as well. You plug in Deshaun Watson, and all of a sudden that team is a, I think, legitimate threat in the NFC East. For sure. They're a Super Bowl caliber team and uh, with, they should, with they Watson should be, and Washington. They should be a desperate football team, in my view. Washington, yeah. relatively desperate. Yeah, I think so. And I don't think Watts. I mean, I don't think Washington would care very much about you know some of the other stuff, the like courtroom and everything else. Well, I'm like, like Carolina. I don't, I don't mean well, to I laugh, mean, like, but like that would be ironic given everything they have going yeah, on. Yeah, yeah. But I think like they're a team that's just desperate to have things about being winning, like winning football games. You know, and I think yes. Carolina's kind of desperate in that regard too. Um, that they really want to win now. But I think Carolina and Washington make the most sense. Um, since ever since, you know, John Mara, Rooney Mara, whatever his name is, I guess his daughter is Rooney Mara, but John it's, Mara it's, stamped it's actually, out all of my hopes. So it's not, <laughs> I read this long article about this. It's actually not John Mara's daughter. I think it's, uh, I think it might be Chris Mara who is like a scout slash other figure in the Giants organization. Uh, okay. I think that, I think Chris is Rudy Mara's father. So this is like an urban legend sort of thing then. 
Well, because I've I've heard this from like a bunch of people before too. They're like, oh yeah, that's the owners of the Giants' daughter. Yeah, it's. Oh, hold on. I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna find this out. I'm going to Wikipedia. All right, let's see here. Because uh, I'm pretty sure it's not John. All right, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna figure this out over the course of our. Because uh, I I watched uh, the girl with the dragon tattoo last December, and I was like, I think we've yeah, become I, like a 2010 hipster. Where I'm gonna read the girl with the dragon tattoo and listen to a lot yes. of MGMT and things like that. You know, bring 2010 back. Uh, quick note: I actually random Mike Meltzer note. I really, really like the Girl with the Dragon Tattoo series. Uh, there are three books in the main collection, and then you know how the author died. Yeah. And so another guy like took over. I read one of his books. That was pretty good. But honestly, like the 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 second and third books of that series, I think are way better than the first one. Really? Yes. And I did confirm that Chris Mara, the senior VP of player personnel with the Giants, is Rooney Mara's father. Interesting. So Interesting. there you go. Yes. It's all, the more it's you all know. Solved. Yeah, well, maybe I'll have to actually sit down and read them uh, now that I start reading books again since I have to, I have to watch the Houston Texans play, you know, for 12 hours a week or everything that goes along with that. Yeah, um, this is the faith that we have in life, Matt. This is our fate in life. Yeah, uh, I'm reading a lot of Carl Jung, you know, about alchemy stuff right now. And so maybe <laughs> I can read something a little bit quicker after that, you know. I love that. Uh, learning a lot about what transubstantiation actually is, you know. But so with, with this here with Watson, I think Carolina makes sense just because you can get like six overall, like you mentioned. And then I think they're kind of sour on uh, on some of their defensive players too from their performance last year. And I just think they're kind of desperate. And then Washington just makes a lot of sense because they are a quarterback away from being a really good football team and they don't have a quarterback at all you know, whatsoever at the moment. I think you and I are on the same page on this. Um, I'm going to be nervous about this possible trade until it actually goes through because gosh, so much of the rebuild hinges on what the package is going to be, and there's just a lot of things that they don't control. But objectively, like I, I think something will get done in the next couple of months. And I, I think no matter what it's going to be, just because of everything going along with it, and I mean, I, and the cases may have a better understanding by you know March or whatever as well, too. Um, I still don't think it's going to be what we thought they were going to be able to get for them, though. Like yeah, I think it, whatever happens in return, we're going to be like, that's it? This sucks, you know? And that's and that's the fear. Like, what what kind of well, out of curiosity, what level of return would make you feel that way? Like one first round pick and one second round pick. Yeah, I, I think people would be like, "What the hell?" Yeah, and that's Especially not outside the, the realm possibilities, too. You know, it's not. And I know there are the reports about what the Miami package would have been if they had consummated that trade by the deadline, but there's no real way of, of figuring out if that was actually true or not. Yeah. Yeah, so. and going back to Carolina, like you can get Brown and even take back Sam Darnold, let Sam Darnold compete yeah, you know, with Davis Mills. And like with the Giants, like that was the reason why I loved them was that you get five, seven, another first, get Daniel Jones. Maybe there's some Ryan Tannehill. You and Daniel Jones compete him with Davis Mills. Mm-hmm. And also like, the Giants, if they want Watson, James Bradbury and Kyle Rudolph aren't going to stop them from making that trade happen. You know, like they would clear the cap space to make that trade happen. So I That's think That's a good point. I think it's a lot of nonsense that um, the giant salary cap is preventing them from doing it. I think it's more the Watson, you know, sexual assault allegations is preventing them from really wanting to make that trade. I'm just really curious because I, the, the, the longer we go into this, the more I become, I sort of feel like I'm not sure if Deshaun's Watts, if Deshaun Watson's agency has done a, a good job for him throughout this whole process. Also knowing that like you can't really control your clients sometimes. Um, I'm just not sure they've done a good job with this because if I were them, 
especially, and I know it's hard to get 22 parties to settle. I get that. The report was that 18 were ready to settle. But with Deshaun's deposition coming up in about a week or so, I think to really open up the trade market, if they could settle these cases, and I mean, it feels icky to talk about because the the allegations, if true, are are Mm -hmm. super serious. Um, But when you look at how civil litigation operates, these cases have been in the system for uh, basically 12 months at this point. I don't think they're going to see trial. I'd be stunned by that. So at some point, the natural result is settlements. You know, can they get these settled in the near future? And then all and I know there's still the criminal element, the grand jury report that they also can't control. But if they could reach those settlements, I think that really opens up the trade market because there would be um, for those other teams just more of a clear sense of where things stand. Yeah, instead of like it's still an open book whenever you bring them back in. You yeah, know? more clarity. And we, I think I've talked about this with you before too. It's like the team that trades for Watson, if he plays really well, like how he played two years ago, I don't think the fan base in Carolina is going to care that much at all. You know what I mean? I think and that's like, right. And we've yes. seen it all the time in pro sports, you know, where guys, you know, make decisions or they do things and everybody hates them, you know, that summer and they go and they start playing, you know, really well and a lot of it gets forgotten. And then when they retire or whatever else, they start to play poorly, then it gets brought up again. And so I think regardless of you know what happens, I think Watson, whichever team gets traded to, they're going to you know, be happy that he's going to be there, you know? I think that's right, assuming there are no other issues and he can get his life together off the field and that this that nothing like this ever comes up again. Yeah, yeah. and this is me saying this on February 16th, you know, uh, at, at the way things currently are and what we've seen, you know, historically with with uh, any sort of like legal situations players have gone through it all, you know. Yeah, like nobody like when they think of Tyreek Hill, they're like mentioning like the the allegations about like, him and his kids at all anymore. You know, like that nobody thinks about that when Tyreek Hill's like hitting the peace sign in a playoff game. They yeah, people do have a tendency to forget. I mean, we we had you know Kobe had a rape charge and he is somebody who died a hero. Uh, obviously, that's you know part of his yeah. you know part of his. Uh, life or obituary, if you will. Ben Roethlisberger as well sort of got past it, but there there was still that commentary a few months ago, like, hey, are we sure about this retirement tour yeah. thing going on? What about what happened in Georgia? Um, Michael and it, Vick as well, too, signed a $100 million contract after yep. you know he went through, he went to jail and everything else. Yes, and, and there's the question of, you know, Deshaun Watson is somebody who has always been, in his football career, sort of a beloved figure, going back from high school to college to early in the NFL, how is he going to deal with being somebody who is booed everywhere he goes in like a really aggressive way? You know, how does he handle a very changed image? I, I don't know the answer to that, but that's something that uh, also if you're an acquiring team, you have to really think about. Like, how is Deshaun going to act? What is his behavior going to be like now that he is viewed in a much different light? Yeah, yeah. I didn't even think about that portion of it all either. Maybe they can get like a, a puppy or something they can carry around. Like Texans pop to help his image. Yeah, that that seems to be the trend. If all is awful with your organization, bring out a small dog. Yeah, I we were laughing about it a few months ago on the show, and then uh, even the White House right now they have a dog as well too. They have a dog Twitter account for the White yes, House right now. They do. No yes. matter what it is that things are bad, just get a dog and give get it a, a Twitter dog. account, and that will make it all better. Absolutely. Like a lot of people like crumbling in their 20s. I'll get a dog and everything will be better, you know? Everything will be fine. <laughs> I like it. Uh, we both agree that Tensel should get traded. I don't think Tensel should get traded to the Bengals at all, but I do think the Panthers make a lot of sense. 
uh, you know, for a tensile trade. I think even the Giants can make some sense too. Even though I think Andrew Thomas, you know, played pretty well at left tackle um, is, and could be able to hang in there. But if you move him to right and then you have tensile left tackle, that kind of like solves you know two problems at once for them. And it seems like they feel like they're some sort of a playoff team at the moment um, with Brian Dable and everything else. But um, I think Tunsil, they're probably going to be able to get like a, a second round pick or a late first round pick. And I think a lot of Texans fans are going to be surprised if they do trade what they actually get for him as well. And sometimes what you get back for somebody depends on what the other team has. So if I'm the Giants, yeah. I'm looking at this, I'm like, okay, maybe if I had the 28th pick in the draft, I'd consider giving up, giving it up for Tunsil. But I've got five and seven. I'm not giving that up for Laramie Tunsil. Yeah. Well, you give you it know. a second, I guess, yeah, like so 36 I'll, or whatever. Yep, and, and so that's why I think a a second-round pick is a much more likely possibility for Tunsil. I think I would put this in the more likely than not category. I think the team and, and Tunsil reached in some sort of arrangement when he got hurt that I agree. He, he probably wasn't going to be back. Uh, he had no interest in playing for the organization or the team in the current state, whatever, fine. Uh, and so they agree to basically you know lie about his condition more or less. He doesn't risk any further injury, and then he goes into this offseason, and they shop for a trade partner. But I, I, I have to tell people, I'll warn you, I would be expecting a return that's along the lines of, like, a second-round pick, maybe more. Like, to me, I, I will say this. Even though he played great down the stretch, I think the Rams overpaid for Von Miller. I agree, um, too. I don't think he was just, that good last year. Like, I, I just think a second and third round pick was too much for Von Miller. Obviously, it worked out. But I still think it was an overpayment. Like, it's not just about the first pick you get. Like, hey, do we get a one or a two for Laramie Tunsil? It's about what else do you get? It's not like if you just get a two on the front end that, you know, whatever, it doesn't matter. If you got, like, a two and two threes, like, that's some real value right there. Mm-hmm. You, you know what I mean? So, there, so it's not just about first round pick versus second round pick. It's they traded Dwayne Brown for a two and a three. Why shouldn't they be able to get the same thing for Laramie Tunsil? Yeah, at least that. At least that too. Yes. Um, yeah, it's I don't know, it's gonna be interesting with that. And also like Tyus Hart played really well at left tackle down the stretch too. Like yes. he played like eighty five or ninety percent of Tunsil as a pass protector and is about as good as a run blocker as he is, and even looked a little bit better at times as far as just his ability to finish blocks too. And so I think with the way Howard played, even regardless of like, well maybe if uh like we, we have this hand in hand deal where we didn't have it even if they didn't have that for Tunsil, you know, they wanted to come back and play again last year. Howard, I think, played well enough that even the injury didn't occur, or even if Tunsil was only out for like four weeks or whatever, I think Howard played well enough that you should trade Tunsil regardless because you're not going to sign him to an extension and pay him $25 million a year, whatever it ends up being. Yeah, it's yeah, it, it's not going to happen here. It just, it, it always felt like a, a kind of odd fit that Bill O'Brien would mortgage so much with somebody with a personality like Laramie Tunsil. I'll, mm-hmm. I'll just put it that way. But I, again, I I think it's more likely than not that a trade happens with him. Yeah, I always think when I think about Tunsil, I think about that uh, Chiefs game whenever he just stopped blocking Frank Clark after three seconds, and then just like <laughs> turn around look while Watson's just like running in circles trying to get away from Clark and takes like a seven second sack. Yes. He just like stops. He's like, oh, okay, the ball should be out by now. <laughs> that's a playoff game, Laramie. Yeah. <laughs> that, um, that's that's a good Laramie Tunsil example right there. Yeah, that and all the miss alley screen blocks like we joked around back about earlier that Robert Johnson yes. can make, Jared Christian can make, but Laramie Tunsil can't make. So right now Houston has 17 million cap space. They have 35 million dead money. Um, they can cut Eric Murray, say 5.4 million. Marcus can say five. Kevin Pierre-Lewis, 3.1 Terrence Mitchell, 3. Jordan Jenkins, 2.8. I 
Max Sharping 2.5, Justin McRae 2.3. And so like, this would get them up to like 41.1 million if they cut all these players, which you know they probably won't do. Um, are there any current free agents at all or possible cuts that you feel really strongly about at all? So current free agents on this team that they should want to resign. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think just Grugier Hill and Malik Collins, but only Collins if the price is right. Yeah. Uh, the, the rest I'm kind of like, it's, I'm, I'm not worried about, you know, Desmond King, Demarcus Walker, or some of those guys. Yeah, I agree. And also, I would cut all these guys personally, too. Yeah, I would, yeah. The, every the, single the, one of these guys the, mentioned, I would cut each list, and every single one of them. I think you're 100% right. If, you, if you're telling me on, 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 on its face, I can cut Murray, Cannon, Pierre-Lewis, Mitchell, Jenkins, Sharping, McRae, and save money, they're all gone. They are gone tomorrow. Yeah, you have $41 million at that point if you do yes. that. Um, yeah, I agree with, like, Grugier Hill and Collins. I think Collins they probably can't keep, but I think for sure they'll keep Grugier Hill. Um, everybody else is just like a long, just like sad list of free agents, you know? <laughs> yes. It's really Boy, some depressing. Of, some of those lists of free agents, God, it's depressing. <laughs> it is depressing. My favorite one, I think, is Jordan Akins because there's that thing they said <laughs> they didn't want to trim the trade deadline. It's like, why? Oh my God. He's just a <laughs> yeah. worse version of Brevin Jordan at the moment. That's I don't know was, why you didn't why? trade him. <laughs> like, why would you not want to trade him? 100%. All right, so make the case for one or two big money free agents um, that you, that Houston should bring in this year. Big money free agents. All right, let me uh, let me do a search here. I was looking at this uh, earlier. So, okay, if we're going like all positions, all positions. Okay, let me look at this. Let me do a, a search here because I think over the cap, I think they suddenly have like a they have some sort of subscription model they've moved to surreptitiously. In the I, last, yeah, couple I days. use over the cap for like the team and player contract stuff, and then I use yeah. spot rack for like the free agent list, and then uh, the player hist- player contract history. You have to use both of them, you know. Yeah, you do absolutely. All right, so as far as big name uh, free agents, I mean, you could say like, hey, let's give a lot of money to like Mike Williams to be our number one receiver for the next like five years, so that no matter who the quarterback is, he's going to have a big body guy who goes up and gets it. I'd be worried about some of his past neck injuries. Yeah. Um, somebody like Brandon Scherf as well. Um, uh, let me think of who else might make sense. Yeah, I guess players along those kind of lines. Uh, but we all know this is a, a fool's errand. They're not going to be signing a premium free agent this offseason. That would really surprise me. I think they'll be, they'll be in a different area of the pool, if you will. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, the only two guys I saw looking through the list is I think Christian Kirk could be a good like number two wide receiver for Houston. Like you can't, you can't like as whenever Hopkins was out, his production dropped, you know, a lot, which was expected. Um, but with Kirk though, like he's good against like number two cornerbacks, and Brandon Cooks is good enough, you know, to have like a one A one B situation. Yep. And like Kirk is gonna go for a lot cheaper than you know you mentioned like Mike Williams or Chris Godwin, and so I think he could be had for a bargain too. And the guy like I would like for Houston to sign more than anybody is Ryan Jensen at center, just because the Texans just like they need an offensive lineman who can kick some ass and he's just like yep. mean and gross and disgusting. And Ryan Jensen is all those things, and also like he's a really good football player. There's so many like fake tough offensive linemen that you see out there. He's uh, good, but Jensen isn't that. Like he's really good and he's disgusting and slobbery and sweaty and is an animal. And so they just need guys like them on the offensive line to kind of just tra- change the, the culture around on the offensive line, just get some mean guys who actually move guys off the football. Yeah, I think that's right. Uh, you and I talked before we started recording about, you know, the, the tight end position. I think Brevin Jordan has some uh, upside, but I'm not going to look at him like he's, you know, Jeremy Shockey or anybody like that. I and love so, Jeremy Shockey. 
Me too. Uh, I mean, there are a bunch of guys who are available who have talent. Njoku's available, uh, Hayden Hurst, O.J. Howard, Evan Ingram, uh, Max Williams. Like, they, they need to be bringing C.J. Uzama. Like, they need to be bringing in one of these guys, at least under the theory of quarterback's best friend. We're trying to develop Davis Mills. Let's add a nice second or primary option to the offense in 2022. They, they, they actively should sign one of these guys. Jasicki's a free agent as well. I'm guessing he'll, get, he'll be re-signed. Yeah, and Gesicki will probably make some good money, too. He's so yes. good at stretching the seam. Um, out of those guys, though, I, I like Njoku, and I like Max Williams more than Njoku, but I like Max Williams in Arizona where he can you know, get tattoos and, and smoke out of his vape and uh, get like <laughs> wear like a skull, do-rag, whatever else he can do in Arizona. It's a better yeah. spot for him to be at. But Njoku, I, like I think, makes sense for Houston, too. I like Max Williams a lot coming out of Minnesota. didn't really work out in Baltimore, but I think he has talent. Yeah, he was a lot of fun last year until he got hurt. Are there any, like, second, third-way free agency guys that you really have your eyes on for Houston? Uh, you listed some, and one guy, here's one. How about DJ Chark? Okay. Uh, somebody who was a decently high pick in Jacksonville. Things haven't really worked out. I think Urban Meyer, not that he's, like, the most credible source by any means, but I think he refers to some maturity issues there. If I'm Nick Casario, what I would actively do is – prioritize not bringing in idiots, but guys who have a lot of talent, who are high picks, who who flamed out in other places for whatever reason, because the Texans need to be, they need to be investing in some roulette chip kind of players, mm -hmm. where if it works out, that player is uh, going to be a part of your long-term future if he can get his head on straight. Um, kind of like the Rockets are doing with like somebody like Kevin Porter Jr. Like, yeah. hey, really talented guy, has been a bit of a knucklehead. Let's take a chance on him because it makes sense in a rebuild to do that. The Texans should be doing the equivalent thing, I think, with at least some portion of this upcoming free agency class. Yeah, and I thought they should have done that last year too, and they didn't yes. do a very good job of that. Um, but that's like why like on this list I have like Cam Sims on there, and I also have Zay Jones too. But like I think defensively, the biggest thing is don't pay for secondary players because they don't matter very much in Levy's defense. If you're going to invest, invest in the front seven and uh, get guys like that, like you mentioned. The other thing about Chart, too, is like he's a really good sideline vertical receiver, yeah. and that's what Mills is good at doing, too. And so that makes sense. But um, I don't really have, like, more guys are going to get cut to add to this pool. But right now, at the moment, the only things I feel strong about is, like, get it tied in, like you mentioned. And, like, if you could give Ryan Jensen $14 million, just, you know, do it. He'll be good for two years and cut him after that. And, like, at least will be some level of tenacity at the offensive line that you've been struggling with for so long. It's a very good point. I, I Not directly related, but I was thinking if the Texans can get some kind of bouncy for Watson and they're picking elsewhere in the top ten, a guy who I think is like a – if they draft him, you can basically put him into the lineup for the next 13 years is the center from Iowa. Yeah, Lindenbaum. Linderbaum, yeah. If they if, if they could pick him with like a second first-round pick or eight or nine, I mean, hell, they could trade down from three and he might be their first pick. Uh, I, I wouldn't be like aggressively against that. I think that's a guy who like, you know, I remember as a Jets fan, like <laughs> they went right from Kevin Mawai to Nick Mangold and it was great to have this like, you know, 15, 18 year period where mm -hmm. you knew who your center was, uh, mm -hmm. unlike that fraud, Nick Martin. So <laughs> Linderbaum is somebody who I'd be interested in, depending on how things kind of shake out with the NFL draft. Yeah. All right. So I got two last questions for you tonight. Um, the first one, the first one's from at confused lefty. And he was wondering what, where are you at with the third overall pick? Who are the Texans going to take at third overall? It's a great question. This is where I am at. The NC State tackle intrigues me because the more I read about him, the more I'm like, okay, this guy's got good size. People like his balance. 
Um, he seems like he could be a left tackle, a right tackle. I think Casario is going to be looking for his equivalent, not just position, but what he means to the organization of what Seymour was for the Pats 20 plus years ago. Okay. Remember that, remember they took Richard Seymour controversially, controversially over David Terrell. It worked out for them. So the Aquanu intrigues me, especially if they do what they should, which is, Hey, Titus Howard's pretty decent at left tackle. Let's put him there. We had this guy, put him at right tackle and you start to build up the foundation of a team. I still like Kyle Hamilton um, because of how unique he is as a player, not a premium position though. I think Derek Stingley terrifies me because I just think this roster is not in a position to where they can withstand yeah. somebody who has his kind of injury history. I think the big question is this, Matt. So it appear it, I get the sense, and you know it's still pretty early. We're a couple months away. The possibility of Evan Neal going number one seems to be growing a little bit. If the Lions pick Aiden Hutchinson at two, and Thibodeau is there at number three, what do they do about Thibodeau? Like, is he such a talent that they're like, all right, this is what we're going to do. And then you put Thibodeau and Grenard and you have the the start of a making of something on defense. Yeah. I don't know what you think about Thibodeau. If you if you looked at him at all, um, I worry that he profiles as kind of a clowny type coming out of college where it's like this guy's man. This guy's a Ferrari. He's a Mercedes. He's a Rolls Royce. But it's got to be in the perfect condition. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, he may not be out there every single week. That's what scares me there. Yeah, that's interesting. I haven't had a chance to watch any of the guys yet. But like from what I've seen, though, if you're in draft smite three overall and not trade down, I think it has to be smart for the front seven. You know, yep. Just because I don't think drafting a corner makes sense at all because what you're going to have them sit and play the flat <laughs> for two years. There's no reason. And then if, like, if you draft like, Kyle Hamilton at safety, he's going to play deep middle half for th two years. What's the point yeah. in that at all? Like, I, I just don't see the need for it. But at least I'm like, with a front seven guy who can actually make negative plays, um, create for others, you know, that guy will be there for, you know, 10 years if you hit, or seven years if you hit there. And he's good no matter what the scheme is. Unlike some of these guys in the secondary though. Yeah, I think, I, I think that makes sense. I mean, to me, the guy who, if he fell would be an obvious lock to them would be Hutchinson because I think he kind of profiles of what they want. You know, his dad went to high school at Cypress Creek. Um, he is a guy who's helped change a culture. That's what they need. People would compare him to Watt, you know, all these kind of things. Um, I don't think he'll be there at three just because I don't know why the Lions would pass on him at two. And so I'm, I'm going to probably operate like he's not going to be there at number three. But you're right. Like, th this is where I struggle with. I like Hamilton. I think he's a really unique specimen. And if you ask me hey, would you be willing to use a top five pick on Troy Polamalu or Ed Reed? I would say, of course, the answer is yeah. yes. Now, projecting that's really hard. This guy seems like he's a unique talent. And so I'd be just real curious, like what they thought of him as they go through the scouting process. Like, is this a unicorn kind of player to where you would consider him at three? I do think that Casario has telegraphed this a little bit. I don't know if he'll be able to do it, but I do think his pre his preference would be to trade down from three if he gets what he thinks is is pretty decent value. Yeah, and unlike Hamilton, if you had Gannon as the head coach, like I would, it would make more sense because you have like a younger defensive mind who may do some different things. But I just, I don't know, I just don't want to draft a secondary guy that has this first two years of his career kind of wasted. You know, play, I can see that. playing in his zone and just kind of sitting there and that sort of thing, um, and not being used in different ways that really you know, matches his skill set. That doesn't bother me as much as long as he's being used at least s relatively properly just because I, I can live with the next couple of years because I know that for the whole roster, barring some miracle, miracle of quarterback, they're going to they're going to 
need time to build this thing up. So I'm not I am I am candidly not as worried about that dynamic as you might be. Okay. Um, and the last question I have here is from at found of HOU Sports again. And he asked craziest Texans fan slash listener encounter that you've had over the last two years. <sighs> is this like in real life or in online life? Because I, either one. Either one. I think the online's a lot more bizarre. Um I had somebody approach me. I was at a bar a couple of weeks ago who knew me from the radio and we were talking about the situation. He was like, man, it's, it's so bad that it's just like humorous to watch what's going on. Um, I would say it's just kind of amusing seeing like some of the seeing that, like, even though things objectively have gone so poorly the last couple of years that there has developed this little niche following of people who are like, you know, the commentary about Easterby is overblown and you guys have Easterby living rent-free in your head, this sort and of thing. I like, hate that rent-free term also. I'm tired I, of hearing that term. I hate that term too because it's like, hey, just because I think something is true and it continues to be true doesn't mean I have to say, well, I've spent so much time on this, therefore I can't make it – therefore I've got to change it to something else. Like the, I understand some of the frustration the fans have with the coverage at times, but like – the media doesn't play pin the tail on the donkey. There's not, we're not like, hey, let's go after this random Jack Easterby guy. There is a reason why SI wrote those two stories. Mm -hmm. There is a reason why this team has gone through objectively two very bizarre coaching searches. Um, and, and so I, I think a lot of that points back to Jack and this weird organizational structure that they have. Um, so I would say as far as odd encounters, it would be some of those debates centering around just like where the organization is, the Easterby impact, et cetera. Yeah. And I love that too, is just kind of like, you know, projection because the football stuff is way down here, like all the way in the bottom of all the yeah. Texan stuff that goes along. So like, is this player good? Is this scheme interesting? Is this a good idea? It's like, it's kind of about the culture and like, why is this team even worthy of our time to talk about at all whatsoever, you know? Yeah. And it's a shame because. What I would like to tell people is here, here are the opinions I would like to have. I would like to come in here and tell you Cal McNair is the next, I don't know, Bob Kraft or Jack Easterby is the new Ernie Adams, the guy who was Belichick's mm -hmm. right-hand man for a long time. I would love to tell you that, you know, Nick Casario is the next, um, you know, Bill Polian or pick or George Young. Uh, but I don't think those things at, at this moment, like I don't believe yeah. those things based on the evidence that is in front of me. Now, we'll see what happens. Like I question the, the Davis Mills pick uh, heavily at the time, and I'm more optimistic about that one. I'm still in a realistic range, but I, I'm willing to I'm willing to adjust my opinion based on what happens. But so far, like uh, let's also put it this way. If you think the local media is hard on the Texans, like look at what the the national people say. I mean, they're like number thirty-two with a bullet, basically. <laughs> I mean, they're they're treated like they're not in the universe of the other thirty-one NFL teams. Yeah, yeah, I uh, I agree with that. And it's like I've I, it's been nice once, like free agency gets going, the draft gets going, because it's like it's me talking about players again, you know, instead yes. of constantly this other stuff, especially not the head coaching searches over. Um, my answer to this question is that we're, we're starting to get some more comments at the website again since they changed the commenting system. And I don't read the comments at all anymore. You know, yeah. I've been called too many names over the years and whatever else. <laughs> and, and it's just like not a good use of anybody's time at all. But uh, now that we have comments about Red Blog again, I always think about the guy who spent um, some time talking about his divorce in the comment section. And so, like, whatever you need the comment section for, if you want to talk about the Texans, there's comments about Red Blog again, even if you need it to talk about your divorce and some things that you're going through. So it's I like there, that. it's open, it's available to you. Um, there's actually some chatter there again. So if you need a, a new place to talk about the Houston Texans, you can go to 
the Bell Red Blog comment section again. Random question for you. What is the oddest ex-athlete interaction you have had in the last year or two? Uh, <laughs> I don't know. I think I would probably say like the Jeff Allen one that you and I had because I kind of <laughs> got baited into it. I like, had no idea he, he was like paying attention all to it. Yes. And uh, like I was like nice to him, you know, but like he was bad in Houston. But it's just like overall it's just weird though in general just how many athletes now search for their names on yeah, there. Yeah, they're act, we're not like putting that we're, – we're not doing the, the ridiculous yeah. thing of like putting – putting like adding them. We're just like tweeting about them and they're finding their own – their own names. Like I had and, something with Desmond King where I thought they're playing cover three just because of the way Lonnie Johnson you know, looked and it was like they had three uh three deep in coverage and four under and there's play action some confusion. I yeah. thought it was like clouds so like King had the flat and he's like, you know, he quotes you he's like, Oh, you don't know the difference between this and this like, Well yeah, like I do, but I don't know. Like I'm not in the locker room at all. Yeah. And then I you know, comment back didn't say anything about it at all. Um, but it's like that sort of stuff is weird now. Like well, I feel only, like it should be two separate things, you know. The yes. players searching up their own names, doing the server stuff, is just bizarre. Like you have, you made four million dollars last year, and this is how <laughs> you're gonna spend. You're finally done playing football, and this is how you're gonna spend your time. That is a great way to put it. I mean, I think I think a lot of times what gets lost in in, in uh, social media is is tone. Um, like it's hard to have unless you're like super heated. Like it's hard to have that kind of uh, ven- not that uh, King was venomous, but like I'm sure if he if he like slid into your DMs even or like called you, he'd be. I think he would probably say something like, "Hey, here's what this actually was. Like here's what I was thinking," and you'd have, would have a back and forth. But then on Twitter, it's like you see it, he sees it, it's black and white, mm-hmm. and he's like, "God, I'm being attacked," and so you have that defense mechanism, the fight or flight equivalent. And then he quote tweets you, and then it's like, well, every now all the fans are going to side with the player because there's that power uh, imbalance yeah, in that yeah. in that kind of scenario. Yeah, and everybody tells you you suck and you're stupid yeah. and all that. Yeah, you don't know. But what like, you're I have <laughs> I think I posted like 35 clips of Desmond King last year not being good, you know, and like he didn't talk about any of those at all. But he found the one where I yeah. guess I didn't I didn't pick up on Lonnie being locked in man coverage with you know, Julio on that play. Like I think King should have had the flat anyways, even if it was cover one. And, like, I was running about a Tyus Howard pass rep, and I told him, I was like, I'm sorry I made a mistake, send a message, like, it's all good or whatever, you know? Yeah. But like, I couldn't mention, I couldn't, you know, talk to King directly because that portion wasn't turned on. But if I'm wrong, I admit I'm wrong. I'm not belligerent about it. But yeah. it's just bizarre to me that it's like, I can do anything in the world, like, in the world. I have $13 million right now, and this is how I'm going to spend my time, you know? That is that is funny. <laughs> it's bizarre to me. As, it, it, a, as a middle-class human, be- human being, it's very bizarre to me. I'd be I, in the Grand Canyon right now if I had thirteen million. Yeah, exactly. The last thing you'd be doing is searching for your equivalent of Matt Weston on Twitter to go back at him. I would never. I would never go on social media ever again. Yes. If I had thirteen million dollars, as soon as I'm done writing about the Texans, I'll never go on social media ever again. That's a very smart strategy, I think. So that's the idea. But and something that well, thanks for coming on tonight, Mike. Do you have anything coming up? Is there where we can catch you? I know you've been doing the Twitter space and stuff lately, and. Yep. As somebody with, with my lifestyle at the moment, it's hard for me to, to tag along and listen to them, but um, it's cool. It seems like a lot of people are enjoying those that you've been doing with them. Uh, yeah, so we've done some of those with uh, Texans Cap and Landry Locker and some others, Brandon Scott. Uh, people can always hear me on Mad Dog Sports Radio on Sirius XM. It's Channel 82. Um, I will be on this Friday night, 6 to 9 Central, and then Sunday, I think, 2 to 6 p.m. Central as well. Uh, typically, I'm, I'm on Thursday nights every single week. Uh but I think with uh, us transitioning out of football season, I'll typically be on 
Thursday nights and Sunday afternoons on Channel 82 on Sirius XM. Oh, nice. And if you're listening and you have a Sirius XM account, I can borrow so I can listen to Mike. Yes. So let me have that because I've been wanting to listen to you for a while, but I can't because I don't know if I want to spend oh. $12 a month, you know? This reminds me, this is probably bad for me to do on the podcast, but I need to, I did a whole rant about, because I was on Mad Dog Radio the night Lovey got hired, and I was like, you know what, screw it, I'm going to get, I'm going to start this show by giving like an 18 minute explanation of like my life, how I got to Houston, me covering the team and what this has turned into. I am going to, I'll work on sharing it with a larger audience, but I need to, I need to share that with you. Yes. And that's me. I'll listen to it tonight while I cook like four meals and do the dishes and do my chores, you know, that sounds tremendous. I'll do that right now. Awesome. (laughs) Well, um, thanks for, thanks for coming on time, Mike. I'm sure we'll talk, you know, here sometime again pretty soon on the podcast. There'll be a lot of it's gonna be an interesting Texans offseason. Yeah. Unlike last year, which will be a good thing to have. Um and so next time I'm at Weston. Thank you for listening to Bell Red Radio and we'll talk to you soon. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at marines.com.